as fate would have it, two men with a love of superheroes and monster movies would be placed on the same development team as part of the Capcom 5. Five development teams all working towards the same goal. Work with us, Nintendo asked of these five teams, and help us create compelling games for the Nintendo GameCube. And with that, Hideki Kamiya and Atsushi Inaba put their heads together and channeled their sheer love into today's topic, Beautiful Joe. Today we'll be looking back at this unique side-scrolling beat-em-up as part of a larger discussion about Kamiya, Inaba, and the Capcom 5 itself. So stick around and join us for our spandex-clad look at Beautiful Joe on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 96th episode of our video game nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we tell you a story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week we are looking back at the story of Beautiful Joe, originally released for the GameCube on June 26, 2003. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who has a thing for men in masks and spandex. It's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, how long have you been in the tokusatsu films, and shows for that matter? Well, Dave, you know, it, it just, it's amazing how much pride these men have. I just don't know if I could do that myself, and it's, it's just something to look into. You know, it's just something to look up to. Pride. Just, like, you know, I mean, just just to be able to do that, to have have that inside of you to be. Yes, I can wear spandex. Yeah. I mean, but then I guess if you're wearing a mask, it, it's not so bad. That's true. I never thought of that. I mean, I also, you know, was a wrestler with a singlet, which is, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was. I. It's a debate between wrestling or tokusatsu. A little know. bit. Yeah. You can wrestle in tokusatsu. That you can. What you been playing this week? Well, Dave, this week has been Rocket League and RuneScape and a short amount of Raft. Oh, you tried to play that, huh? <clears throat> I played a couple hours because a friend talked me into it. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, other than that, it's been a pretty light week for gaming as, uh, as it was last week. So how about yourself? I think just Rocket League and some Fall Guys. I'm pretty. Mm. I, think, I think that's it. I don't. Interesting. I don't. Maybe I played ten minutes of Cyberpunk this week, like while waiting for something to heat up in the oven. Um, but it has not been a very substantial gaming week for me whatsoever. So, but we are here to talk about Beautiful Joe. Have you played Beautiful Joe before? I have not played the game before. I did get to see a couple of friends play it uh, growing up and in college, but I never myself played through the game, so I only know kind of what it looks like and how it plays to some degree. Gotcha. I can honestly say the same. I remember the hype around it. I remember people playing it. 
it just never got to me for whatever reason then um but that's 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 okay that's all right we we are we are still capable of telling its story right right i believe so dave so at a young age hideki kamiya had a neighbor who would frequently invite him over to play video games on his epic cassette vision console now we've never really talked about the epic cassette vision console it's a second generation japanese console it was comparable in power to our atari 2600 but it didn't have separate joysticks it was kind of one of those original like self-contained units where the joysticks were built into the console itself so it was one unit it had a variety of games it was like a 12 and one kind of console it's basically what we know to be a pretty standard uh representation of the early of early consoles um now it was actually the best-selling console in japan until nintendo came out with their family computer also known as the famicom also known in stateside as the nintendo entertainment system um so it was the winner prior to that so i guess in that respect it was like the atari 2602 you know yeah, I suppose so. I mean, not that I have much experience with that either, but... No, but it was definitely the system to have before the Nintendo came out. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, we have the ColecoVisions, the Intellivisions, and all the others, but Atari was Atari was the big one. Atari, Atari won, 2600 won that generation of consoles and rode it into the ground uh, until Nintendo pulled us out of... Out of uh, out of the depths after the video game crash, you know? So, um, Kamiya really first fell in love with gaming due to the sounds that the console produced. That was, that was it. He liked the beeps and the blips and the bloops. Now, as a child, he was also into monster movies, um, and shows kind of like Godzilla, Ultraman. Those are two of his big inspirations. When he was in junior high or junior school, it's junior school to them, it's junior high for us, his family bought, I mean, what's next is the Nintendo Famicom. So they bought a Famicom and he, the first game he remembers buying was a puzzle platform game for the Nintendo called Nuts and Milk, which... I yeah I have nothing else for you about nuts and milk. Wow. I mean I I looked it up, but it, it's a puzzle platform game with a funny name. So that's a very interesting name. Mm-hmm. Yep. In high school, Kamiya bought a NEC PC, which was one of the big PCs back then, uh, to study programming. But like most of us that buy PCs intending to do something else on it, he really ended up only playing video games on it every day. Uh, guilty. His wow. favorite games growing up are some of our greatest hits. They include Castlevania, Space Harrier, Punch-Out, Wonder Boy and Monster Land, Snatcher, and Zelda A Link to the Past. Oh. That's some of those I know. Some of those you know. You... I'm not really sure what Snatcher. It's or... a cyberpunk game, if I'm not mistaken, from back then. I don't know if it was stateside. Uh, Space Harrier, do you know? Uh, sounds like a jet in space. 
yeah that's yeah that's pretty much it wonder boy and Monsterland was a sega master system platform game it was kind of like the game for the sega master system which was their their system prior to the genesis um yeah here so at some point after this Camilla was reading an interview in family computer magazine that featured game creators uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, who we've talked about continuously. He is the creator of Mario, among other um, storied franchises. He's been the fa- he was the face of Nintendo for years, um, and it also featured uh, Masanobu Endo, who is best known for cr- helping create Xevious, the side-scrolling shooter, and the Tower of Jiraga, which was a um, another know another staple of the early gaming this article basically inspired Camilla to become a game designer so he goes to college and after college he decides that he wants to apply for jobs at various game development companies he was turned down by some sega for instance told him no namco actually offered him a job as an artist but he wanted to be a game designer so he held out And in 1994, he was hired by Capcom to be a game designer. And early on in his career at Capcom, he was given the job as one of the game planners of the original Resident Evil. So, got a good start, right? I would definitely say so, yeah. (laughs) After his his work on Resident Evil, he was asked to be the director of Resident Evil 2. Um, I will Um. spare... The details of what happened, because I'd like to do an episode on RE2 one day, but its development was not a perfect process, and he eventually was asked to step back and become a producer on the game, while where another team took it to completion. Um, even still, after that whole boondoggle uh, was finished and Resident Evil 2 was released to the world, he was still held in high regard and was asked to become the director of the first Devil May Cry. So this is that's that's like one of your favorite series. Jesus. I know, right? Um again, I'd like to do a, a series on the first Devil May Cry, but if you didn't actually know this little fun fact, Devil May Cry was supposed to be a new entry in the Resident Evil series. It was actually supposed to be and planned to be Resident Evil 4, but as they you know to sum it up real quickly as they worked on it they realized that their story wasn't really fit for the resident evil universe and uh and it was repurposed as devil may cry but we'll save the details of that story for that for devil may cry because it's really fascinating and that brings us to the capcom 5 rob you ever heard of the capcom 5 before uh i have not dave no it's like some you know it sounds like some bunch of bad bad guys you know infamous infamous bad guys or maybe the good guys yeah maybe maybe i mean we are kind of talking about superhero today so november of 2002 capcom held a surprise press conference and they announced a series of games that are now known as and well not now back then and now they're known as the capcom 5 these are five titles that capcom was I, I feel like that's redundant now that I said it out loud. The Capcom 5. There are actually six games. 
There are five titles that Capcom was planning on developing exclusively for the GameCube. Now, the GameCube had been out for about a year at that point. It was actually released back in, I think, stateside November of 2001, if I'm not mistaken. So it was literally out about a year at that point. And it really wasn't selling up to Nintendo's expectations. And if you're curious what that looks like, I checked. Its first year, it sold about 4.7 million consoles. But that wasn't that wasn't up to stuff with what they wanted. So Nintendo goes to third-party developers and they say, hey... Guys, we're Nintendo. You know, y'all are doing wonders with the PS2, the PlayStation 2. Um, come work with us and help us, you know, bolster sales for the GameCube. Come do the same for the GameCube, basically. Now, during the earlier console generations, Capcom and Nintendo were honestly thick as, thick as thieves. We, we've covered Capcom before. Mega Man, which we did a previous episode on. Um, was developed by Capcom, and that was one of the biggest selling games on the on the NES, you know. And really, to further the point, back in that generation, the Nintendo generation, Nintendo as a company had a stranglehold on the console market, um, which really didn't give third party developers much choice in the matter. Now we've talked about that vaguely before when we covered unlicensed consoles i believe that was the wisdom tree episode we did earlier this year but everyone wanted to work with nintendo because if they didn't they were going to get left behind and so you know they did and then like i said capcom just had a really great relationship with them because Mega Man had ended up being a, a big smashing hit but then the second genesis came out and that changed things and Things changed even further in 1995 when Sony came out with the PlayStation. The disc-based format that the PlayStation used was way better for developers than the cartridge-based hardware that Nintendo insisted on using constantly. First in their NES, then the Super Nintendo, and then here uh, in the Nintendo 64 era, which is what competed against the PlayStation, you know? The cartridges were limited in memory compared to optical discs, the, the CDs that the PlayStation and then DVDs that the PS2 used. And if there's anything we do know about Nintendo, it's that if you're going to do something with Nintendo, you're going to pay to do something with Nintendo. So the cartridges were also expensive because developers had to pay Nintendo for for permission to, to use a console. Nintendo probably manufactured all the consoles. And so because of this, Nintendo really fell out of favor with third-party developers as, you know, as we worked our way through those couple generations of consoles. Now, this is probably one of the reasons that the GameCube is disc-based. You know, even if it wasn't um, CDs or DVDs, it was still optical discs. It was tiny discs. That was likely a compromise in Nintendo's eyes. But here we are. We're here in the GameCube era, and Nintendo isn't selling very well. And so they went to third-party developers, and they basically said, "Hey, we need some help. Well, let, let's 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 do this." And so the Capcom Five was basically Nintendo going to Capcom and asking them asking them for help, and they, them agreeing. So let's look really quickly at the Capcom Five. Uh, Rob, have you ever heard of PN03 before? Uh, I do not believe that sounds familiar whatsoever to me, Dave. Cool. It was a science fiction themed third person shooter. That's, I mean, that's really all I have to say about it. 
Um, how about Killer Seven? Mm, nope. Negative. Oh man. So Killer Seven was a pretty cool action adventure game that had first person shooter elements, but also was a rail shooter. And I know that sounds like a really weird mishmash, but the art style was really cool. And it was actually a really good game. Um, IGN actually named it once named it the best game that no one ever played. Killer Seven was was a halfway decent game. How about Resident Evil Four? You ever heard of that one? No, I haven't heard of that one either. Yeah, I know. Well, that's a over the shoulder shooter. This it's this, I don't know some survival horror game. Uh, probably one of the most famous survival horror franchises. And that specific one is probably one of the m- most requested fan favorite. I'd say it's probably one of the fan favorites in the whole franchise, honestly. And they keep freaking releasing it. They just did it in VR, which is pretty cool. Oh, wow. I actually didn't know about the VR release. You didn't know there was a Resident Evil 4 VR? Uh, I did not. I haven't looked too much into VR. It's one of the big, highly recommended VR titles right now. I'll have to check it out. There was also a 3D shoot 'em up called Dead Phoenix. Coincidentally, it lived up to its name halfway because it was canceled before it ever saw the light of day. Unlike the Phoenix, though, it did not rise from the ashes. And we, there, yeah, there's no Dead Phoenix game. And then lastly, we have the topic of today's discussion, which is Beautiful Joe. So the team that worked on Beautiful Joe was called Team Beautiful. Really creative, right? Yeah. It was going to, for sake of argument, if anyone's wondering, it is also known as Clover Studio. It wasn't officially called Clover Studio until Beautiful Joe 2, but we're really not quite there yet. So here it was Team Beautiful. Um, And our boy um, Kamiya was the director put on the team. Now, the producer that was put on the team uh, was Atsushi Inaba. Now, Inaba had worked with Kamiya on Devil May Cry. He has a credit on Devil May Cry for what's called technical cooperation. After working on Devil May Cry, he was hired on as the producer of uh, Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, which we've covered in a previous episode. Also, its sequel, what, Attorney for All or something like that, the second one in the series he produced as well. And he was also the producer of Steel Battalion, which we've never done an episode on. Steel Battalion, if I'm correct, is a mech game, if I remember correctly. Don't hold me to that. Yeah, I don't know on that one. Now, Atsushi Naba was a lifelong fan of superheroes. And he was looking to make a video game that combined American comic books with traditional Japanese tokusatsu. So, tokusatsu, for those of you who don't know, this will be our learning thing for the day, is... Rob, do you know tokusatsu? Nope, that's not a name I'm familiar with, Dave. Tokusatsu is a Japanese term for live-action films or television dramas that make heavy use of practical special effects. Hmm... It's almost like we talked about that at the beginning of the episode. I know, right? So the most well-known examples of tokusatsu outside of Japan are the Godzilla movies and the Power Rangers. Other examples, uh, more so on the Japanese side, include Ultraman and all the rest of the kaiju movies, which are giant monster movies. These include Mothra and Gamera. And when you look at this game, it's very easy to see this inspiration 
Um, you know, as as normal, I always encourage you go on YouTube and, and look at a playthrough. But beautiful Joe himself is very much looks like an Ultraman. And the game is laid out like a comic book. It's got some really awesome 3D cell shaded graphics. Uh, it's a 2D side scrolling game. And even the story is inspired by Tokusatsu. In fact, it's part of the story. So as it goes in the beginning, Joe and his girlfriend are watching a tokusatsu drama at the movies starring a character called Captain Blue. At one point, the villain just seems to defeat Captain Blue, upon which he reaches out of the screen and pulls Joe's girlfriend in. Joe gets sucked in the commotion. Um, I think he's brought in by Captain Blue. And then he's given a device which allows him to transform into a superhero and has to fight his way through a bunch of villains to save her which is basically the plot of a, a, you know, a tokusatsu drama. So the game itself is very meta in that respect in that it is one, it, it's, it's part of one, and it's inspired by it. So there you go. Now, originally, when they were working on Beautiful Joe, the development team, they started out with only six people, and they were working under a 12-month deadline, but as the game progressed, the team grew and the deadline got pushed out. Um, it ended up taking about 21 months to complete with 100 some odd people. Um, but completed they did. And Beautiful Joe was released for the GameCube on June 26, 2003. Now, for those of you that have never played Beautiful Joe, it's a traditional side-scrolling beat-em-up game. You move left, right, up or down on, it's like, it's a beat em up. Beat em ups are, you know, I don't know, Double Dragon, Turtles, um, Streets of Rage. Those are all beat em ups, right? I think I got them all. You have enemies that come at you from all directions. You can punch, kick, dodge them. You also have these cool VFX powers, which are designed to emulate cam camera tricks that you see in films. You can slow down time. You can move really fast. Um, when you slow down time, your reflexes get better. You can dodge attacks more easily. When you speed up, you create multiple images of yourself, which allows you to like um, unleash a flurry of attacks on enemies all over the screen. And then the, um, the last power you gain as you go through the game is zooming in. It causes a little, ca you know, the camera zooms in on Joe and then his um, his normal attacks are more powerful, and he gets some some new attacks, some specific to that mode. So, um, and then you know you defeat the enemies to get little dollars or V bucks or V marks. I forgot what they're called. Beautifuls maybe, and you can use that to um, upgrade your. Um, you can new buy new abilities, buy new weapons, more health and so on and so forth it's just um it's 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 beautiful joe right rob what do you remember about the game i remember that it had a very unique art style and i thought it was incredible because it was like a comic book uh it, it's it is all of the different scenes just it literally was just like a constant moving drawing um the combos it was it was really cool the way you, you didn't block but you avoided hits and then the combos that you could do 
Right. Um, yeah, they used a cell shaded. It's a three D cell. It's a two D side scrolling game, but it's done in a three D cell shaded art style. And cell shading is when it's done correctly, it's always a great look. What's a really popular cell shaded game? Borderlands, for instance, is cell shaded. Done. It looks completely different, but it's you know still cell shaded. It's the first one that popped into mind. Well, that's. I mean, that's. That beautiful Joe, Rob. What did people think about Beautiful Joe? Well, Dave, we'll start off with our critic reviews as always. Okay. And with that, we're going to start off with a review from GamePro Magazine, where Pong Sifu called Beautiful Joe frantic, exhilarating, and addictive. Okay. He writes that it's heart. Beautiful Joe is a retro flavored remix of Beat 'em Up and Platformer, which Capcom has catapulted into the 21st century by infusing them with spellblindedly art direction, relentless manic energy, and unique gameplay mechanics. He ultimately calls the game a powerful effort, with its only flaws being its threadbare adolescent fantasy plot and short duration. Anything to say there, Dave? Yeah, I I was going to say something about how I don't feel like the game is short, but I never played it. I don't. I don't really know. I only know that from what others say. Never mind. Move on. I mean, I know for a fact that at a world. I mean, I don't know if it's a world record at this point, but I know that a speed run can be completed in about thirty-five minutes and a long play about three and a half, four hours. So, I for mean, one, for one playthrough. Yeah. If I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, yes. Absolutely. One playthrough. Gotcha. I don't know why. I didn't think otherwise yes i just watched a speed run recently 35 minutes although wow. i didn't finish the long play it was about 340 and considering that the speed run was 35 minutes i'm assuming that it could be the entire game in four hours for someone just doing it casually that's crazy 35 minutes to beat this game i mean yeah i mean in the grand scheme of things i suppose when you're used to some games being like under a minute that's where it's like oh you know true statement but still no it's absolutely incredible that it's 35 minutes cool 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 so next up we have jeff gertzman who in his review for GameSpot, says that beautiful joe is part of a slow makeover that the action genre has been getting over the past few years with devil may cry leading the charge he writes that it definitely delivers a fantastic cell shaded look also added a really great series of unique gameplay twists that make the game much, much better than just an average side-scrolling action game. He calls the gameplay very exciting in an action game that offers much more lasting value than most, clocking in at about 15 hours on average. I wonder if that's playing it over and over again, because I think, couldn't you unlock other other characters and stuff? So maybe four hours is one playthrough and 15 is everything? Uh, perhaps, yeah. Or, I mean, maybe the long play was just uh, a short amount of the game. Cool. I really, I, I had never played it myself, so I could only speculate. All right. Continues on by saying the graphics are anything but stale, whereas the over-the-top comic-like appearance works really well with the superhero theme. All in all, the look of the game is unique and well done, equally impressive in both art and technique. In the end, he calls Beautiful Joe a really impressive achievement. It managed to simultaneously recall the similar times of 2D platforming action games while modernizing the genre in several major ways. It has an incredible look to it and enough depth 
to keep you wanting to play even after one playthrough? There you go. That answers the question. I guess he played it over and over and over again. I suppose so, Dave. So, in his article for IGN, Corey D. Lewis writes that with Beautiful Joe, your time has come to awaken the harness within. It has a tight focus on side-scrolling action mixed with Capcom's wavy yet curiously cool 2D art style that keeps both old-school action gamers and newcomers both glued to Beautiful Joe. All in all, he calls the game one of the most action-packed and genuinely entertaining games he has played in a long time on any system, and an effort that Capcom should be proud of. He says it's hard to fault the game in any one particular area other than its slightly flat story, because most everything else has already been polished to perfection. Graphics, gameplay, and lasting appeal are nailed to make Beautiful Joe truly fun. Beating this game is a badge of honor to wear with pride, and he plans on playing it through several more times to see if he's still man enough to call himself a gamer. Well, that's a little dramatic, perhaps, but I'm glad he likes the game. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Dave, I think that's enough about the critics, because uh, as most of our listeners are, I mean, they, they, some of them may be professional video game critics. I have no mm-hmm. idea, and if you yeah. are, that's awesome. Maybe. But the majority of us are just your average folk. So uh, let's hear from other average folk. Okay. So first up on Metacritic, we have Joe D, who writes that in an age obsessed with photorealistic graphics, it's great to see a developer take a chance and come up with such a brilliant title. Gorgeous visuals, challenging and intuitive gameplay, and combos that would make Neo piss his pants. Okay. For God's sake, you can slow down time and punch bullets back at whoever is trying to cap you. By Beautiful Joe, you won't regret it. I don't know if that is supposed to be a review that is um, talking about how much Beautiful Joe is a stellar accomplishment or just a scathing uh, hatred for the Matrix series. I'm not honestly sure. I mean, he's just saying he's better than Neo. I don't... Well, where does the hatred for Matrix come in? I mean, it's... You're reading between some pretty thin lines there, Dave. Alrighty, fair enough. Well... Next up, we have Ian C. from Metacritic, who calls Beautiful Joe magnificent. He says it's an old-school platform fun with wonderful rapid kung fu antics, astounding graphics, and the time control that is, well, spectacular and spectacularly entertaining to make use of. What could turn into staid, boring little scraps can become awe-inspiring mini-epics, particularly when you tune your fingers to the intuitive controls and lay <laughs> and can lay waste to a single group of bad guys with an eye-watering combination of slow-mo bullet time, flipping and kicking, a high-speed torrent on fast-forward, and finishing off with a zoom-in and super 360-degree kick. This game is exactly what I love Nintendo for. Fun? Fun. And fun. Okay, well... I, I guess he likes Nintendo because it's fun. 
And fun. And fun. Ah, right you are, Dave. Ian finishes saying, hesitate not. Buy now. Oh, yes, and please confine this Mario for President, Prime Minister, King of World baby talk nonsense to the schoolyard. I, I don't remember that. I, I Was Mario running for president at one point? I, I don't recall that being a thing, but honestly, I think, are we re- can, can it really get much worse? <laughs> True statement. All right. So maybe Mario will bring back some, uh, maybe he'll create the Mushroom Kingdom, and then we can at least just, you know, live lives and fun-fueled fantasies. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's, oh, jeez. That's the way to look at it. There you go. Oh, man. Anywho, next up we should take a listen to Stuart L. on Metacritic. And, quite frankly, he's not nearly as big a fan of this game. He writes that this game is highly overrated. The graphics look like crap. The control scheme is okay. The plot is bland. And the game's just far too repetitive, with each level being more or less the same thing. Also, the abilities are introduced way too early in the game, leading to everything after a certain point being the same exact thing with few variations in puzzles. Don't believe anything you hear about this game. Give it a rental at least, but I don't think it's worth even that. I love how he hates everything that everyone else loves. It's It's got to be a troll, but who knows? Different, I mean... Different strokes for different folks. I'm going to say I, I'm not going to believe anything from that review because uh, Stuart specifically said, don't believe anything you hear about this game. And oh, there you that's, go. There's an entire review on it, so I, I guess I just I can't believe anything about it. Good, good. So it's good. Swoop, gone, gone. I forgot about. I we didn't even hear it. But Stuart, your your opinion's valid if you're listening. <laughs> so last up, Dave, we have Jog to. Uh, I don't have no idea. Yeah, joggle, joggle, joggle. We'll go with joggle. Okay. So Dave, last up, we have Joggle on Metacritic, who would prefer to take the middle ground. Writing that as I stayed, as I started playing the game, I felt interested by what seemed to be a refreshing idea. But it didn't take long to realize that even though it is far more innovative than an average game, the gameplay is extremely repetitive, and fighting is based on repeating the same moves over and over again. If it were beneficial to use different superpowers all the time to get the best results, it would be far, far more satisfying. And when you add the tedious puzzles that even sometimes lack logic, the annoyingly quiet dialogue and other flaws in design, the personal touch just doesn't save it from its shortcomings. They finish saying I would give it a four, but I have to give one extra point for its personal touch. Therefore, five out of ten. Oh, okay. I mean, they almost gave it a four, but hey, five out of ten is definitely the middle ground. Five out of ten, for sure. Well, I guess... I guess people really had a love or hate relationship with this game. You know, it was, I guess, a mild commercial success. They didn't... They really didn't have high standards, you know, or expectations for any of these games. Um... 
It sold about 275,000 copies on the GameCube and only about 46,000 copies on the PlayStation 2 when it was ported over later. It did win a ton of awards when it was released, though. It was, you know, best GameCube game here and there, best design game, best character. So, I mean, critics seemed to generally like it, and it got a lot of recognition. But for whatever reason, that didn't really translate into sales. Actually, I could probably answer that. I mean, the GameCube never was a, a smashing success, so there's your GameCube sales. And by the time it was poured over the PS2, who knows what was going on there. But it was successful enough to start a franchise. You know, we got Beautiful Joe 2 a year later. And then a year after that, I think in 2005, we got Red Hot Rumble, Beautiful Joe Red Hot Rumble, and Beautiful Joe Double Trouble. For later consoles, you know, Kamiya doesn't work for Capcom anymore, but in interviews, he has been repeatedly quoted as saying that he wouldn't mind working on, you know, another game in the series, and also has been caught slipping in saying that he would like to bring the whole series to the Switch. So he's not done with the series whatsoever. Um, and at one point, there was actually a Beautiful Joe TV series. It has 51 episodes. It was broadcast every Saturday over in Japan for a while between 2004 and 2005. Um, and then it was broadcast over here on like WB Kids for a little while. They got through 20-some episodes before they canceled it. And if I'm not mistaken, you can find it to stream on Crunchyroll these days. Do you still use Crunchyroll, Rob? I certainly do, Dave. Yeah, so if you ever want, we're curious about the Beautiful Joe cartoon. It's on Crunchyroll, I believe. Well, I'll have to give it a check because I did not actually know there was one. So returning to the Capcom 5, um, let's talk a little bit about what they did for the gaming industry. Um, each subsequent release of another Capcom 5 title just proved to Capcom more and more that the GameCube was a failing console. I mean, frankly, none of these games really truly sold very well on the GameCube. Uh, it just, it never took off, never had the player base. You know, the, let's be honest, the PlayStation's through first and second eras just spanked all the competitors so i think what gamecube sold 20 30 million and the playstation 2 sold 150 some million or some stupid discrepancy like that don't hold me to any of those numbers but it's ridiculous quality over quantity dave no okay through this whole ordeal capcom learned and they really changed their business principles they learned how to streamline development through creating all five of these games. And most importantly, they learned to focus on multi-platform releases. And that was kind of, in a lot of ways, the end of exclusivity for Capcom titles. But if we're going to look back, the Capcom 5 really isn't as important for what it was as what became of it. Um, these titles became the basis for... for for games that we still play now so for instance pn03 was the inspiration for vanquish which was a halfway decent title and it's frequently called the spiritual predecessor for bayonetta which is a very big series we're about to get a third bayonetta game on the switch actually we'll talk about that in a hot second 
And of course, Resident Evil 4 ended up being ported over the PlayStation and became a really big title. Um, no joke, I'm, I'm pretty sure, because people get excited whenever there's a new version of Resident Evil 4. I'd argue that it's one of the favorites in the series, depending on when you were introduced to the series. It plays from an over-the-shoulder perspective. That over-the-shoulder perspective was kind of new, and it's been used in many games after that. It, it, it's, it was popularized by Gears of War. That whole franchise uses that same perspective. The Batman Arkham franchise uses that whole perspective, so we can thank Resident Evil 4 for the way those games play. And it was one of the earliest titles that had laser dot aiming. You know, that's that's the... You know, when you aim your weapon, there's a little laser dot. And this was designed as an alternative to lock-on targeting that's used in many games. And laser dot aiming is copied in many big games. Dead Space uses it. And the Grand Theft Auto franchise uses it, which is a is a, 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 a huge one, you know. And for better or worse, Resident Evil 4 also changed the survival horror genre. You know, it's most noted for being less about the horror and more about the action. For years after Resident Evil 4 came out, because it was so popular, the survival horror genre was definitely more action and combat based as opposed to the earlier games, which were more stealth survival and puzzles. So Resident Evil 4 was, um, it was a very notable game, you know, and it started here with the Capcom 5. After creating Beautiful Joe, um, Hideki Kamiya worked as the director of Okami. Rob, have you ever played Okami before? Negative, Dave. That's not a familiar title to me either. Oh, Okami is an excellent, excellent game. It's um, it's a mix of action, platforming, puzzles that really borrows a whole lot from the Legend of Zelda series and puts it together in a really beautiful... I mean, really, truly beautiful and unique art form and style. After Okami, they shut down the studio. At this point, it was Clover Studios. Clover Studios worked on the other Beautiful Joes, and they worked here on Okami. And after Clover Studios was shut down, Hideki Kamiya moved on from Capcom. Um, He worked at some other studios, but eventually he helped found Platinum Games. Um, Here... While working with Platinum Games, he helped create Bayonetta, which we kind of just talked about. And he is the producer, if I'm not mistaken, on all three games in the series. So he's that's that's his contribution to um, to gaming nowadays is Bayonetta. Are you a Bayonetta fan, Rob? I actually have never played any of the Bayonetta games, Dave. Oh, I would think you'd really like them. They're they were genuinely, truly up your alley. Um, All I know is that I despise Bayonetta because it was really difficult for me to play against her in Smash. uh, Well, it 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 as a Devil May Cry fan, you would very much like Bayonetta. It's very similar and uh, wildly awesome. That's the story. It's kind of the same universe that like supernatural gods and demons and heaven and hell type stuff. It Bayonetta is very similar, so. Kamiya has also worked on Astro Chain, The Wonderful 101, which was another superhero game he made, World of Demons, and earlier this year they made a shooter game called Soul Crusta, which has a really kind of funny story. 
Last year for April Fools, they announced Soul Cresta as an April Fools joke, and then a year later they released it as an actual game. That's not so much of a joke. It's a it's a decent game. I also, thought you said Soul Cresta, like crust, and I was I thought it was yeah. funny, but I realized it's Soul Cresta. Yeah. Weird name. The Sun Cresta, Soul's Sun. Oh, that makes sense now when you put it into perspective. From 2013 to 2017, at Platinum Games, Camille was also the director on Scalebound. Scalebound was a game that, I mean, I was stoked for it. It was just really cool. It actually looks a lot like what, um, what Horizon Zero Dawn turned into, but not robots, but like dinosaurs and, cre- and monsters and stuff like that, so... I don't know. I guess I guess that gameplay style, but more like Monster Hunter or um, that, that's probably the best way to put it. But in any case, they hyped it up a lot, gave us a lot of really cool gameplay and, and, and video stuff. And then I, I don't know what happened. I didn't dig into it. But in 2017, Microsoft canceled Scalebound. And currently, uh, Kamiya is working on something called Project GG. It's the last in what he calls his hero trilogy. So Beautiful Joe was the first game, and that was all about one man transforming into a hero, uh, while his second game, Wonderful 101, was all about a team transforming into heroes. And so Project GG is going to be the third game in the trilogy where you are a giant hero, and all we know is it's a similar concept to the other two. Probably a giant hero who's not a hero who's transforming into a hero because that seems to be his MO. So yeah, we're going to get a third game that's you know related to these from Platinum Games. Of course, I mean, Bayonetta's right around the corner, so that's probably what they're working on. And that's, um, that's Beautiful Joe, the Capcom 5, Hideki Kamiya. Hideki Kamiya has some other really interesting parts to his life, but those are game-specific. I... The, the story of our Resident Evil 2 is kind of wild, to be honest with you. And we did the original Resident Evil, but we haven't done the second one yet. We've been saving that one. Indeed. And 4. Mm. And 4 and Devil and May Cry. They're all related to one another. Yep, oh. yep, yep. Oh, spooky, spooky. I don't well, know. Dave, I, don't I guess know. that if people want to find out when we talk about those or like, you know any other game we're going to talk about there's probably somewhere where they should go yeah rob uh you know we post a calendar of all of our upcoming events from now till the end of the year on our website which is www.memorycardlane.com also on memorycardlane.com you can find my research notes you can find links to more information on the games i frequently post links to playthroughs for the games I also have a biography on there and links to our Discord where you can join our community and tell me I'm wrong about something and come play games with us. So um, don't forget to hit that community button. Uh, There's also a little button where if you want to submit your own memory. So if you look at that calendar and you're like, hey, you guys are doing... uh, what are we doing later, Rob? I, I don't even know. Why am I drawing a blank? I made the calendar. We're, we're doing this game, and I have a great memory for it. Hit that button and give us the memory. God, that was, <laughs> that was the worst plug in the world. Oh, there you have it, folks. Dave has devolved. 
I, I know. I it was it was honestly the worst plug. I mean, but look. So let's some games we have coming up. You know, um, we're gonna do Turtles in Time next month sometime. You love Turtles in Time. I sure do, Dave. Uh, we have a Mario Kart episode. Y'all are bound to have great stories about Mario Kart. We're gonna go do, um, you know, Command and Conquer later on in the year. I know we've, you know, some people that listen to this that I know have played Command and Conquer with me. We've got to look at the origins of Fallout and Grand Theft Auto and Assassin's Creed. We got a lot of heavy hitters from now to the end of the year, y'all. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I am sure that y'all have some really great memories about any of those titles. So click on the calendar under each one is a button that says share with us. You hit that, you fill it out, you zip it to me and um, I'll read it. Well, Rob will read it. We'll, we'll share your memory instead of someone else's. I want to hear from you. So you can also find links to our social media. I am on various platforms as David is wrong. Rob, what are you doing these days? I can be found twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, at the top of each episode, we tell you that each week we like to tell you a story. This week's story was about Beautiful Joe and Hideki Kamiya and the Capcom 5. In telling you stories, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. As part of telling you stories, we also like to admit that we learn things too. Because when you teach, you learn. That's why I like to do this, to be honest with you. I learn new things every week. So as part of our commitment to you, we like to go round table and talk about our biggest takeaways. So Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I learned that there were a Capcom 5 in which I only knew of two of them. Which is surprising. Resident cause... Evil 4 and Beautiful Joe. Yes. yeah, Very good. Very good. I'm surprised a little bit that you never stumbled across Killer7. I guess I'm not. It is the best game that no one ever played, but it's a super cool game. I mean, to be fair, I mean, assuming that these were all around the GameCube time and being in the GameCube, uh, I really mostly just did Pokemon and Mario games. Yeah. Same. So, I mean, if they happen to be other games for the GameCube, I just never got to play them. And obviously Resident Evil, I always played on my uh, PlayStation or Xbox when it came out for that. So, um, yeah, no, it's it wouldn't be surprising that it didn't cross my uh, my vision, my gameplay. Fair enough. But it's also very interesting to know that uh, the guy who worked on this worked on a lot of other projects, and uh, I mean, even Devil May Cry. That's that's actually really cool to know that Beautiful Joe essentially had some kind of influence in my favorite game series. Mm, vice versa. Wow. Okay. In- inspir- inspiration. Beautiful Joe was the the. Yeah. Well, yeah, Devil May Cry gave way to Beautiful Joe, which gave way to Bayonetta. So it's kind of the in-between. You you can see him progressing down this route. Um, you see a lot of him in his games. But then he got, you know, it's Sushi Inaba here. And Inaba said, here's my superhero game. And, you know, brought the 
brought the men in mass and spandex over to uh i mean let's be honest that's what beautiful joe is right a superhero in, in spandex and a mask so absolutely uh my biggest takeaway was something i didn't actually add to today's episode um what do you mean day you're telling me that you held out on us I didn't really hold out on us, but but like as I'm sitting here thinking about what my favorite thing I learned from doing research on this episode, I in hindsight realized now that it it didn't really have a place in this episode. Um, growing up, I was a very big Power Rangers fan, and um, Power Rangers was a um, basically its creation was. It, it took footage from an old Japanese tokusatsu show and it filmed American actors reacting to it. And that's how they made the show. And I never knew. So basically all the big giant monster fights weren't actually made for power Rangers. They were, they were another Japanese TV show. And I never knew that before doing my research on tokusatsu. Wait, so. you're talking mighty Morphin. I'm talking mighty Morphin. Yeah. No the way. The original series. Yeah. 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 Yeah, they took footage from an old Japanese show and they interspersed it with new footage from America with the American actors. So what? That's crazy. And in hindsight, in hindsight, like that's now my favorite thing to have learned from this episode. <laughs> I mean, in, 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 in hindsight, you can see it. You know what I mean? Like when you when you go back and when you when you go back and you look at it and you're like, okay, I I get it. You know what I mean? Like I absolutely get it. Um, it's kind of it's just kind of fun. That that was. That's it. It's kind of fun. That's awesome. I mean, to be honest with you, Dave, that I grew up watching that because of you. Still love Power Rangers. Mm -hmm. uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers theme is actually, I have a heavy metal version that I thrash out to every once in a while on the drive home. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it was, um, what show was it? Um, do, 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 do. The show adapted stock footage from the Japanese TV series, Cute. Kyoru Sentai's Ruranger, which was from 1992-1993, which was the 16th installment in Toei's Super Sentai franchise. Those were attempts at words, Dave. I know. Basically, <laughs> basically, it still stands. They took, they took, uh, they took that stuff. So, anyways, that was that was my favorite thing that I learned. I learned. Yeah, easily mine too. Now that's that's incredible. <laughs> so, I mean, if you want to make me pick something about the game, I really never knew about the Capcom Five. That was all new for me. And it was kind of fascinating learning where it came from. Not so much where it came from, but what it did for the industry, and that it literally led to Capcom redoing how they approached video game development. So, it's kind of cool to see cause and effect like that as we research and, and learn about video game history. So, all right. Well, on that note. Rob, before I take it out of here, is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do want to take just a very quick moment to say thank you, thank you, thank you to each of our listeners. It means the world to us that you are here, and we hope that it gives some meaning to you. Very true. Very true. Very true, Dave. Yes. Back to you. Thank you so much. Well, Rob. I like you. Ha ha ha. Next week, we're going to tell you the story of one of the games that is frequently cited as one of the hardest video games of all time. Created by Takuru Fujiwara way back in 1985, Ghosts and Goblins is a run-and-gun platform game originally released as an arcade cabinet. It has a very, very 
I wouldn't say well known, but it has a very it has a rage inducing twist to it. And if you don't know what that is, we're going to talk all about that next week. Um, it started out as an arcade cabinet, but it was later ported over to the NES where it sold like 1.5 million copies. No big deal. Um, and generate a few games, other games. So we're going to talk about Ghosts and Goblins series. We're going to talk about the game and the series as a whole. We'll talk about its creator. So it's going to be all the ghosties and all the goblins. So join us again next week as we take a <laughs> boxing bo- boxer underwear clad trip <laughs> down memory card lane. Do the thing. Skip up. Do you What? What?